Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. My guest this week never wanted to be an actor. Then he was cast in the part that changed his career. You have a cabinet of Pfefferman family secrets. Yes. Yeah. Let's hear it. What you got? Um, there was the whole defense. We both know how that got there. Yeah, I know that one. Anything I don't know? Okay. Um, <clears throat> Ali used to sell your mom's Valium in high school. Really? Yeah. How do you think we always had money to do stuff? That's fucking awesome. And there's the woman that babysat you that drove you around and took advantage of your sweet little teenage bod. And it was super lecherous. Um, if by lecherous you mean rad? That's really gross. You mean, um, every 15-year-old boy's wet dream? Yeah, Josh, whose wet dream? Mine. I mean, what if you were the 15-year-old girl and it was a 25-year-old guy driving you around? Who's fucking you? Doesn't that seem weird? Hey, I'm leaving. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's listen to Dreamboat Annie. Oh, you really don't want to be alone, do you? <clears throat> this is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Jay Duplass as Josh Pfefferman with Kerry Brownstein on Transparent. Before that game-changing Amazon series came along, Jay was known as one half of the Duplass brothers, writing and directing indie films with his brother Mark, like The Puffy Chair, Cyrus, and Jeff Who Lives at Home, along with their, in my opinion, underrated HBO show, Togetherness. Since that series was abruptly canceled after just two seasons in 2016, Jay and Mark have more or less gone their separate ways creatively, still working together as producers on shows like Wild Wild Country and Room 104, but giving up on their lofty dream of being the next Coen brothers. It was a conscious but still traumatic uncoupling that Jay talks about at length with me in today's episode. Their split freed up time for Jay to pursue solo directing work on my previous guest Bridget Everett's HBO series Somebody Somewhere, as well as his highest-profile acting gig since Transparent on HBO's Industry, which will air its second season finale next Monday night. Jay plays Jesse Bloom, a.k.a. Mr. COVID, opposite Mahala Herald's Harper Stern, and delivers a truly unique and often hilarious performance as a charismatic billionaire who just happened to exploit the pandemic for his own financial gain better than anyone else on the planet. If you're not watching, I highly recommend you catch up now. So let's get into it. Here's me with Jay Duplass. So yeah, I I want to talk about industry because I've just been enjoying it so much, um, and it's so fun to see you kind of enter that world of this show that I that I loved and I've loved your work for so long, and seeing them come together. But I read that you had actually never seen the show when when it first came up for you to to join it. Had not heard of the show. Uh, <laughs> There's just so many it. shows, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. There really are. It's tough to keep up, and you know, I have kids and trying to make all our stuff. Yeah, I just um, it was not on my radar at all. Um, and uh, when the um, the guys had offered it to me, I you know feverishly watched uh, the first season and. Um, I was just super impressed by the show and just how, how realistic it was and how smart it was and how it was moving at a thousand miles an hour <laughs> and not slowing down for you at all as a, as a non-finance person, but somehow you're understanding it and, and just the performances. I mean, I just felt like it's just so rare when 
you're watching a giant universe like that and all the performances are just like so in the pocket um yeah i was just really blown away and then when i talked to the guys uh who created it mickey and conrad um you know they they were really proud of what they had done and but at the same time their whole attitude was like we can do better we're leveling up this season we're figuring some things out like we're going to new places and i would that's that's when I was like, yeah, hundred percent. I'm in. Um, was it intimidating at all to, uh, to know that you were going to have to kind of engage with that financial jargon and the, and the stuff that is sometimes hard for hard for viewers to know exactly what's going on. Um, I wasn't as intimidated as I should have been. <laughs> it turns out it was way, way harder than I thought it was going to be. You know? Um, I mean, I have a lot of friends who've done Sorkin stuff and they're just like, yeah, get ready. It's going to be, yeah. um, it's going to be a lot. <laughs> But it was more than even what I imagined from Sorkin, just because, yeah, it is another language almost entirely, especially when you get in these little finance jargon runs where you're just having a fully financial conversation. It's (laughs) fully veiled. And I think the toughest part about it is that it has to move super fast and it has to be laden with playfulness and fun and emotion and uh, you know so it was um there was a lot of walking around whales in the rain saying lines out loud to myself uh you know looking like a crazy person looking like a freaking crazy person yeah exactly like it truly was you know because a lot of the stuff that i've done like outside in or transparent or you know stuff that i've done as an actor it has been like very emotionally laden stuff that is very intuitive and especially for me making that kind of material my whole life like it's just it's always been very easy for me to learn lines and um it was intimidating and also just you know my brain is 49 years old um (laughs) (laughs) you know so like i you know what's incredible is like my holla is insane like she can stroll in that morning (laughs) and learn her lines and i'm just like I'm jealous of your brain. Um, yeah, it's funny. It's like you said that, you know, the show is so compelling, even if you don't always know what's going on technically. And I found that from the beginning that I was just so locked into it, um, even though I know almost nothing about this world. Um, but did you feel like you do have to kind of understand it to play it? Or are you or how how do you approach it that way? Yeah, you do have to understand it. You have to understand everything you're saying and everything. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand everything in season two because I like gave up on everything that didn't relate directly yeah, to me. You got you know? to focus somewhere. <laughs> yeah, but I did. I did. Um, you know, I, I did ask Mickey and Conrad a million questions as I was going. You know, because you you not only have to understand the singular thing that you're saying, but you have to understand the context of the world that it's in so that you have all those inflection points and you know exactly where this lies and what it means and, you know, how, how much of a technical cheat might this be against the feds? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, is it, how egregious is this proposition? It's a 20% you know, that kind of, no, this is full boat grift, you know what yeah. I mean? Like just <laughs> knowing all, all of those elements was definitely uh, critical and laborious to say the least. Yeah. So th- this character of Jesse Bloom, I mean, the first thing that we learn about him um, and the first thing, in, you know, that we learn about him in the script is that his nickname is Mr. COVID because he, you know, exploited the pandemic more than anyone else and got richer than anyone else on the pandemic. So when you, you know, first got that and, and read that, what did that tell you about him and, and how you wanted to approach it? Well, I just thought it was that part of it was fascinating. I love the fact that, you know, he's, it takes you a while to figure out but that he's essentially in the UK to like go get his son, you know, or at least try to. Um, I thought that was incredible. I actually sat next to Jeff Bezos a few times. Oh yeah. When you were working for Amazon. (laughs) Yeah. In the early days of transparent, that was the show that built Amazon, you know? Um, And so he was at the golden globes with us. I sat next to him there. He was at uh, one 
uh, one or two of the Emmy shows. And I don't know why, but I get sat next to him. Maybe because I was <laughs> the only other white dude in the whole show. Um, he's like, he'll, he'll be comfortable with Jay. Yeah. I don't know. I but we, what, and what I, um, found super interesting about him is, um, how super nice he was. Um, not just nice, but like genuinely took interest. Like he was asking me about my kids and stuff and like very charming person. And, um, that was one of the first things that I started talking to Mickey and Conrad about because everyone is so cutthroat in the show. You know, obviously Jesse's is a killer and can be a killer, but like the thing that I started sort of like working with them on is like, I actually want this guy to be as charming as possible and as like friendly as possible. Um, because I think that especially from an American perspective, um, for, for a self-made man, um, any self-made person in, in America, usually it, it usually comes from charm and charisma. Uh, there's usually at least a certain element of that in there because, you know, the UK system is very different. Like the old money is different. Like people are baked into power a lot more and he's not baked into power. And so like he clearly in his twenties and thirties could not have been like a total dick. You know what I mean? You, you have to like convince people of your ideas and charm them. And it's definitely more of an American perspective. And so that was like my first take on him and they loved it. Um, and so we, started judging sort of his language around that. And then just in general too, they were like super open and let me Americanize um, the language as much as possible, you know, um, cause you know, um, even, you know, Ken Lung's character is, has been living in UK for a while. He would definitely be using like British vernacular, but um, the guys were just awesome. I mean, it was like a full boat collaboration to kind of create, a unique person that felt real um, and was, and felt personal on some level. Cause I thought it was to me, um, he's such a whale in the terminology of this show. And he's such a, um, you know, and all these billionaires are so otherly, you know, my whole thing was like, let's bring him in and let's really understand how this guy ticks. Yeah. I mean, with someone, the, the description of Jeff Bezos that you, that you gave us is not really what most people would expect from the public persona. Do you think that that was, do you think it actually was genuine or you think it's like very practiced um, ability to connect with people in order to get where he has gotten? I think it's genuine. Um, I think he's a, I don't know. He, I mean, it might, it might've been partially just because he was like in a brand new world and just kind of like, Whoa, what is all this stuff? Yeah. He was kind of an outsider in the Hollywood he was yeah and it is insane to go in those rooms um especially golden globes where literally i mean it is bonkers i mean you know you it's even more so than the oscars because the oscars you're 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 in a you know you're in a stadium all facing one way basically but golden globes is like a pretty small area with just tables and everyone's mingling and everyone's drunk and and the amount of gargantuan famous people that are just like (laughs) you know, standing in line to pee, um, is insane. I mean, it's like Oprah's there too, you know, it's, it's, it's really bonkers. So I think maybe that had to do with it, but I don't know. He was just really, he he was like easy to talk to, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think with, with your character, Jesse, you're, you are able to bring this kind of warmth and humor to it that, I don't, that may not have been there, you know, in the original conception of the character. I mean, I think that obviously comes from who you are as a performer and your history and everything. So, um, was that something that was always kind of on your mind too, is the, the humor of it and, and trying to find places to, to make it funny? Cause the show can be really funny, even though it is so dark at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It has that hard edge, but it's just like the way that people operate, there's like, they're aware that these people are insane um, or that, that, that an insanity has gripped them in the way that they're <laughs> operating. And I, I enjoyed the shit out of that. And I definitely was try, you know, was interested in it, enhancing it. Um, uh, yeah, for sure. So, and they seem to embrace it. Like, um, you know, just even with the tennis, they were like, can you play tennis? I was like, yeah, I, I grew up playing tennis. And um, I, 
you know, I started playing and we started talking about how like I needed to play tennis worse. Yeah. <laughs> because like this guy, this guy did not grow up playing tennis. He sees it as like a semi highfalutin sport that he, you know, needs to like get good at and he can't and he kind of, you know, he's in the, he's in the ballpark, but like it's not, it's not going good for him, you know? Um, that stuff is fun to me. That's just some fucking kid is just beating his ass in tennis. <laughs> and then in this, uh, in the most recent episode, that episode seven, um, we get this very bizarre look into his apparent home life in this deserted mansion <laughs> full of screens and a basketball hoop. And that must have been kind of a fun uh, space to explore. Yeah. Um, we legit were in a weird ass house just out in the middle of Wales, um, you know, and super lonely and highfalutin and weird out there. And, um, you know, yeah, it's just, I thought all of it was kind of fascinating, you know, just the loneliness of his situation and, um, you know, um, wanting intimacy, not knowing how to do it. And also just like accepting like who he really is. Um, <laughs> but yes, playing basketball in like a, um, a great room. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I don't know what a banquet hall, like it's like, yeah, clearly like, Mead was drunk in this place 400 years ago. And he you just know, like threw up a basketball hoop. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Probably cost him like $3,000 to get that shipped over. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the the relationship between Jesse and Harper is such a central part of this whole season. Um, and it's this very complicated relationship. Um, how do you, how did you kind of track it and, and view it a long time? Because as we are getting towards the end of the season, he's basically ghosting her and, you know, stopped responding to her, even though she needs him more than ever. Um, so how did you, how did you think about that? I thought about it mostly as like, um, a love affair where I'm cheating on my son <laughs> with this daughter figure. Sorry. I can imagine what this looks like, but, uh, you did say where you were going to be. Okay, can so. you not? Because that's borderline behavior. You asked for something material. I'm bringing you something material. It's exactly the kind of post-pandemic play that you like. Exciting intel. Edge. You know, during the gold rush, all the gold miners actually went bust. People keep bringing me these vaccine plays, the gold, which is actually not worth that much. I'm interested in the picks and the shovels. The people who sold those, they were the ones who came out on top. Yeah, this is a pick and shovel play. That's how I viewed the entire, Jesse's entire arc is like going to the UK to like create a relationship with my son to get him back. Um, and the, the harder it gets and the, you know, I think he thought he would go and things would just progress towards a, um, positive place. But I, I think he wasn't aware of like the damage that had been done. And, you know, at least for the first several episodes, like the relationship actually gets worse. I think, um, the more that he's there. And so he takes an interest in Harper, both as a daughter figure, both, you know, there's so much about Harper that appeals to him. Like he's the kid that he wanted. She's the kid he wanted. She's, um, she's a lot like him. She comes from nothing, you know what I mean? Um, and so, you know, she has to like operate entirely on charisma and on, you know, gutsy calls. And, um, and I think, um, yeah, I really just, I did want it to get as personal as possible towards the end and, you know, reveal his immaturity and his petulance around, I think, um, his inability to like create intimacy and good relationships in his life. And I think he loves her, you know? Uh, and, and, and also like she says, wants to draft off of like the, I mean, he will never experience the meteoric rise that he already experienced. It's, there's only probably a hundred people in the history of civilization that have gone from like a postman's son to like a billionaire, you know? Uh, that level of growth and, you know, it's, it's done. So, you know, to be a 
to have, to be able to draft off of that potential for Harper is so exciting to him and but to also come to terms with the fact that it'll never be his, you know, it's a, it's, I, I have some of those things now as a middle-aged, you know, filmmaker who came from nowhere. And I mean, you know, I tell people this, but like, I don't know if they believe it, but like when I premiered our first film, the puffy chair at Sundance in 2005, and it, got a standing ovation and you know it was a fifteen thousand dollar movie legit shot by me you know like every image came into this crappy camcorder and the sound too you know it was a crew of two people and it sold and it got written up and stuff that was more than i ever thought i would ever achieve in my life like i was just like I, i'm good like I can quit now. I don't feel that way anymore. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> but you know, I, I, you know, I never dreamed I would be where I am now. Um, getting to make art for a living. And, um, so I, you know, I can relate to that too. And, and some of the frustrations of, you know, trying to reinvent myself as I go and, you know, keep growing and changing. It's hard. Well, I would love to talk about sort of the, the reinvention and all of that because, um, you know, you recently did this New Yorker interview where you talked a lot about your uh, conscious uncoupling from your from your brother, Mark, um, and, you know, still working together in a lot of ways, but not in that really close writer-director way that you were for so long. Um, I was looking, it's now been, I believe, 20 years since you wrote and directed your first short together. Um, this is John. Uh, so... Yeah, I mean, can you just talk a little bit about, you know, what that has been like to be in that relationship, both as a brother and and as a such a close partner for so long, and making the decision to to kind of break away a little bit. Yeah, I think it's been. Um, I mean, the best way to describe it is it's been just like a long evolutionary process of you know um, just trying to stay true to who I am and what is emerging, you know, what desires show themselves. Um, I think it's like a weird mysticism to, I don't know. I mean, it's going to sound like highfalutin and stuff, but it's just like, you know, just being an artist is, is a, is a mystical experience on some level. If you're doing it, if you're doing it right, I guess, you know, and by mysticism or, I just mean that um, it's it's a process of like letting things be revealed to you as opposed to deciding what what you want, what you think you want, um, because that constantly changes, you know, and, um, you know, there's, you know, a lot of heartbreak and realizing that we probably weren't going to be the Coen brothers um, <laughs> <laughs> together. Um, but there's also like, a lot of positivity and, you know, just becoming who uh, I'm becoming, I guess. Um, and a lot of excitement and a lot of mystery to it. Um, and just, just trying to stay true to it and just trying to be loving through the whole experience and support each other in the best way possible. I mean, it just sounds like this murky therapy experience, but that's kind of what it's been because we've been pretty rigorous about, um, you know, being good to each other throughout the whole process, whatever that's been. I think a lot of my art has been about like, um, this balance. I think the whole television show togetherness was about keeping this balance between, you know, being a good brother, being a good friend, being a good dad, being a good husband and being true to yourself and how, when you work really, really hard at both of those things, you're kind of like a millimeter away from drowning at any point in time. <laughs> but I think that's like, to me, that's the balance of my life as I see it actually is, um, you know, finding, and that's a tough, that's a tricky, it's a tricky place to be. Um, and it co- needs constant re- reevaluation. Yeah. I mean, togetherness was kind of like your, the last big project that you did fully together, right? Yes. That, that's the last project I would say where it's like Mark and I were like arm in arm as two immigrant brothers, you know, <laughs> not that we're immigrants, but that's how we operate, you know, um, just like in it full on together the entire time. Um, and it was hard, you know, it was hard. Like we didn't, 
I mean, all of our love and energy for each other and for art in general was going into that show. And so you kind of like lose your friendship and your brotherhood, you know, you don't lose it, but you don't want to hang out any more than you already are. I mean, you're just like together all the time and there's so much pressure on it as well. So it's a very unusual thing where you kind of feel like you're like, you're taking your history and your brotherhood and your love for each other. And you're just kind of putting it into art. And it's, so it's like that, that's, that's a super complicated thing to do. And, um, yeah, just, I mean, I think about it a lot because we come from, so our, our grandfather started dry cleaners in new Orleans in 1939. And that's like our family business. And that's why our dad was able to go to college and stuff. And that was like the original, the original, you know, immigrant, um, Duplassy experience. And, and he, he created this dry cleaners with his two brothers and they all lived in row houses a block away from the dry cleaners, like these like tiny shotgun houses in new Orleans. And they all, loved each other so much and they fucking hated each other and they would like punch <laughs> each other in the face and they were, but you know, they like had to make this dry cleaners work because that was how they could get freaking food, you know? Um, and they ended up not liking each other at all later in life. And, um, I think like I felt that coming. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what you were trying to avoid trying to avoid that. And so like, you know, a big part of the talking about, you know, how, how are we going to stay together, but like to be free to do our own thing. is just like, let's prioritize our brotherhood over, you know, um, filmmaking world domination or whatever, whatever <laughs> our little immigrant brains were cooking back there. You know? Yeah. Do you feel like you've been able to, to navigate that and, and find a way to, to be, close and be you know be brothers and and not have as much worry as you did before yeah i mean it's huge now i mean it's like we've you know it's taken years and years but like you know my my goal is like i want to help mark do fulfill his dreams he's trying to help me fulfill my dreams and uh in the middle you know and and that usually just comes from like supporting each other in terms of what we're doing creatively um in terms of us hanging out, it just pretty much manifests as, as hiking because we both love hiking and that's a great way for us to just kind of like hang out and just, I mean, it is a very primal thing because, you know, you know, we, we, we go on day hikes together, but we also go on like really big challenging backcountry trips together. And it just feels like we're just playing in the woods together. Like we used to do as kids. So, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I I wondered if any of the tension came out of the fact that you that he was always the actor and you were not the actor and then you became an actor in a big way um you know mainly on transparent um did that lead to any competition that wasn't there before when you really had like your own defined roles I don't know if it I don't know if it if there's competition with us as actors I think for me, it was specifically because he was an actor, his schedule was very packed all the time. And I, all I wanted to do was to be a Cohen brother, you know? And so I found myself when Mark started really taking off as an actor, I found myself just being like waiting for a year for a window when Mark could write or direct something with me. Mm -hmm. And I was yeah. like, this is getting weird. You know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, I feel, feel like you're just life, waiting around. Yeah, I'm just waiting. And, um, you know, um, and I think once I started acting, um, for me, at least it was more that like, oh, shit, uh, this is great. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, because number one, like I can I have stuff to do, you know, <laughs> and number two, this is a form of creativity that I don't have to like check in with Mark on. I can just like go with my instincts. Um, it's all me. And that feels really good. You know, it feels, it, it gave me a taste of what Mark was having all along. I think, you know, so I think, you know, I'm, there's definitely like subconscious, um, jealousy and competitiveness with us. It, it's not very manifest though. I mean, like, I don't feel, I don't feel 
that much competitiveness with Mark as like an actor. Like I just, I just want to have a good life and like feel like I can be myself, you know? Um, and you know, I'm sure if like my acting career like went to shit and his just, he just starts winning Oscars. Like it would just be super hard. <laughs> yeah, that you might, know what that I mean? Change things. It would change things. And we, we both have that fear of like, if one of us like, gets real successful, like crazy successful, or like just starts making colossal, incredible art. Like it's scary because it's just like, oh, well that was the person with the special sauce this whole time, you know? Coming up, Jay looks back at the complicated legacy of Transparent, including why he thinks it actually may have been necessary to cast a cis white man like Jeffrey Tambor in the lead role. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible Irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to my conversations with other comedy filmmakers like Judd Apatow, Mike Birbiglia, and David Wayne, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now... Back to Jay Duplass. You've done incredibly well in, in the acting front. I mean, really starting with Transparent, which I think seems like from the outside was a big turning point. Um, and you something you had kind of resisted before that was was going off on your own and, and acting. Was it really liberating to do that in the sense of like not having to worry about all of the other stuff and and directing? And because I mean, it's so consuming to be thinking about the production, but when you were on Transparent, were you able to kind of step back and say, you know, I'm just an actor here and I'm going to do my part? And, and and what was that like? Yeah, it was everything you said. <laughs> it was very, <laughs> it was super dreamy. I mean, let, let's, let's be clear though. I slid over sideways into what I felt like was um, an incredible piece of art that was incredibly culturally relevant and important with incredible human beings and with a brilliant showrunner. So, uh, I kind of like came in at the top, uh, as far as I was concerned. Um, and you know, I came in under the wings of like a really great filmmaker, which takes away a lot of that worry and a lot of that desire to try and like stick my fingers in stuff, you know? Um, that being said, I had done a season of Togetherness and Joey Soloway at that point in time had not done it, you know, directed any TV and not show run anything like that. So I was definitely able to just kind of like not even give advice. It was more just be a shoulder to cry on because show running is devastating to your life and to your personal humanity. You know, it's just, it's a giant inhumane job in my opinion. Um, <clears throat> but um, that's worth it if you have something like, transparent to share you know but so i i I felt super lucky super liberated uh i was like oh my god i can i can enjoy my life you know which is hard to do like because i was i was currently but the first two years were tough because i was still uh show running togetherness and and that togetherness was kind of my baby you know so mark was fully involved but it was like clearly like it's on me, you know what I mean? Like it's on me to, to do 
to lead the charge of all the things here. Um, you know, obviously, Transparent has a very complicated legacy now, and it's something that I think we talked about last time we talked. Yeah. Um, and so we don't need to go into too much of that with you know everything that happened with Jeffrey Tambor. But I'm curious just how you think about that show legacy now you know now that it's been a few years and um you know also just in the sense that it was so culturally relevant it was so, seen as so progressive at the time now i think it would kind of be unthinkable to have a cis actor playing mora on a show like that um so it also just shows how much things have changed in, in such a short amount of time so how do you think about that that show now it's a great question i agree with you i think it would be unthinkable to have a cis person you know, play that role now. I think probably at the time it was what needed to happen, but I don't know, you know. You guys really did never teach us how to eat. You realize that, right? Because we come from shtetl people. Your grandma Rose actually ate lettuce with her bare hands. Dear God, Josh, seriously? <laughs> Do something about yourself. Actually, on principle, I will not. I'm eating barbecue and it's on my face. I'm not perfect like you. Sarah's like this cleanliness USA. Oh, you know what? It's really not that hard. White. Why don't you clean up the barbecue sauce inside your vagina? Hey, guys. Sorry. Listen, I have, I need to talk to you about something. There's a big change going on. And. Oh, God. I love you, kids. I love you, kids. I love you, kids. It is cancer. Daddy, oh my God! You're dying. Just tell right. us if you're dying. I knew it was cancer. Daddy, are you dying? I don't think cancer. he has cancer. Dad, just, just tell us if he looks cancer. He looks good. Thank you. What, it doesn't matter how he looks. Uh, Remember Jill Goldberg? Yeah. She had a melanoma for three years. They didn't. They couldn't see it. Then boom, she's dead. Jill Goldberg is dead. Yeah. No, and if Daddy had cancer, you'd have the kind of way he looked at. The one. Well, all your friends died of it. What is the thing? Prostate. Right. Prostate cancer. Right. That's the one that you'd probably have. Super sick. Oh my God. Somebody, I can't remember who wrote this article, but somebody wrote an article about how the show is is actually about a family's experience of someone's transition, you know, and that was jo- Joey's experience at the time. Now, since then, Joey has transitioned, but um, it's not it about really, the experience of the of the person yeah, transitioning. And it, it, I mean, it contained that experience, and I think it, I think it did it well, uh, you know, um, and you know to various, I mean, everyone has a different opinion of it, but, you know, at the heart, it really is actually a child's experience of what happens when a family, you know, has to go through massive change and, you know, the challenge, the gauntlet that it throws down to everybody else. It's really a show about enduring transition as opposed to transitioning. And then like what that does to you, which I thought that was so brilliant and it, you know, uh, and it was just honest, you know, because it's like, it just, it was what Joey was going through at the time because, you know, they were going through that exact thing with their parent. So, um, I don't know what that means, but that's something that's really stuck with me in retrospect. Like I find that I learn a lot about the stuff that I do through you guys, like really smart critical writers and interviewers who are, you know, able to sort of think about things in multi-levels of context. Because the thing is, is that, you know, when you're making a show, it comes from a very primal, um, often unprocessed place. And when the art is coming out and it's being processed as it's coming out, I find that's when the art is the most primal. And, you know, I just feel like the world what probably needed to see a cis man become trans to see a dad that they had always thought was a straight cis white male, you know, become a woman and a woman that she was always meant to be. That is, and I, I can only say that because that is how I felt, you know, for better or for worse, I mean, that, that is an admission of my own limitations at that point in time. But also similarly to like, you know, I grew up in the deep South. I grew up in New Orleans and like my parents' friends were like, oh my God, they're just like us. You know, they're just like, they're just a fucked up family. 
And here's the crazy, here's some of their crazy shit that's going down. And I think, I don't think those comments would have come in, uh, in the same way because they all loved Jeffrey Tambor in that very specific way that anyways, that's my take on it. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're probably right. And that maybe that's what people needed to see to, to understand it, which is a lot of what that show was trying to do in a lot of ways is make people understand what this experience is. Cause there really hadn't been a story like that on TV before then. And it, you know, that that's could be a very selfish perspective because maybe that's just what cisgender people needed to experience to like, well, yeah, I don't think it, it's, not it's not necessarily what trans people needed to understand it, but maybe that wasn't the goal or not the, the, the entire goal. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the feedback I would get from trans people, uh, what was specific to that in that, like, um, <laughs> thank God for this show because I can now, I can now have Thanksgiving with my family again. So it, it, maybe less about them and more about like bring, it was able to bring their family into the fold of like loving and understanding and like being able to joke about stuff and have fun with it and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I it's just a light take on it. I mean, the way that I feel is that um the judgment of art is a tricky tricky thing. You know, speaking as a person who makes art from a subliminal mystical place like we were talking about. It's like it's like um I think Mike White said it really well in his interview about White Lotus was, you know, he was like, "Yeah, this is a super problematic show." <laughs> you know like yeah like they kind of came for yeah, him not you know, hiding he's like that yeah fact. yeah he's like i agree he's like i am a super privileged white dude who like travels around and stays in fancy hotels and he's just like i am not ignoring that i think it's right there you know he's like and he's like i don't know how to fix it i you know i'm just you know revealing it as it is he's like i'm trying my best um but it is problematic that it, it totally is um I think it's when shows try to act like it's not problematic on some levels. And I, I mean, I, that's one thing about Joey Soloway is like, they're totally willing to admit that they fucked up and like, this wasn't perfect or whatever. You know, when you're in brand new murky territory, um, you're going to make mistakes. That's just what it is. And, you know, I, you know, it's just, it just is what it is. It's like, you know, Try making a piece of art (laughs) (laughs) and not making a mistake and not making a mistake and good luck with that. You know, Um, it all, this conversation kind of relates to the chair as well, which is another show that I really enjoyed um, you in. And uh, cause that show deals with sort of cancel culture and PC culture and all of that. And you're playing this uh, professor at a, a college who gets caught on camera doing something that, on the surface looks very problematic um, and and maybe under the surface as well, but it's not, it definitely doesn't seem like it was an intentional uh, thing that he was doing. Um, what, what did you learn about all of this stuff getting inside the head of that guy who is someone who kind of becomes a cancel culture, uh, you know, target? Yeah. Um, I learned a ton. Um I think, uh, I mean, Amanda and I worked really hard on this show together and, um, yeah, Amanda Pete, who you obviously cast in togetherness and then kind of returned the favor and and you guys got to work together again. She and I had been talking all these years about what we were going to do together next. And this thing emerged and, um, you know, I was very involved with like the development and the writing of it and stuff. And I think, uh, one of the things that we were exploring and that, both of us had learned uh is that at least from my character's perspective was that um you know the the initial infraction of a person who is you know violating um probably you know rules that they don't understand and not just rules human beings you know is usually um just the tip of the iceberg um and, uh, unless it's like, you know, Harvey Weinstein, who's just like yeah. freaking raping full on people, monster, yeah. full on monstering people, you know? Um, uh, and what's, what I found super interesting about my character in the chair and what he was going through is that, uh, this 
Heil Hitler that he does is clearly he has no malintent. But but what it reveals is his like lack of awareness that this could really offend other people. And it also throughout the course reveals his stubbornness and his like sort of baked in as as great of a guy as he is. And as much as he is probably being over convicted for this one action, it's a tell. And and the tell comes out, especially with people in the real world. It's 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 less about that initial infraction and more about how they handle it, how they own up to it, what they do after and how it reveals like all of their unstated, you know, secret secrets are just stuff that they're not even aware of. Yeah. I thought it was a really great show. Is there, are there any plans to make more of it or is that definitely not happening or? I don't think it's happening and I don't fully understand it. Yeah. That's a bummer. I really Netflix. It's a real bummer. Yeah. It's, I really don't understand. It's not an expensive show and it seems to really resonate with tons of people. Um, Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on over there that, at netflix that we don't that i don't understand but yeah i don't understand it either i have not had i've not had a um sufficient explanation but yeah. um you know it's too bad um i want to talk a little bit about uh directing um because you've been directing some really great tv um recently too. uh you know search party uh somebody somewhere um i thought it was a really great show as well um i know you you've sort of teased the idea of that you want to direct a film on your own. Um, where, where are you with that? And, and what's your, what's your outlook on that? The, the story about the, uh, the warring dry cleaning uh, grandparents sounded uh, like a, <laughs> that could be something there. Yeah. I did have that idea at some point in time. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, what I would say is I'm just kind of like slowly moving several things up the hill um, I hope that one of them happens soon. You know, there are very different kinds of projects and they're the main thing I would just say about them is that, you know, I feel like togetherness was sort of like the culmination of this sort of domestic, um, dramedy that we've been doing where we make fun of ourselves on camera, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, you know, I feel like I've gotten to the point where like I, I know a lot more now about the widgets of good storytelling and I'm ready to expand into bigger and more and different arenas of, um, you know, storytelling. So I, some of it is stuff that I've written with other people. Some of it is personal stories for other people that I'm helping them tell their story, just like with somebody somewhere, you know, um, uh, some of it's really big stuff like, you know, multi-genre stuff. So, um, I honestly don't know where it's at other than like, I'm just doing my good Catholic schoolboy job of just like, you know, <laughs> going, through the, my, going through the steps, putting in my hours. Yeah, exactly. I have like a little high school schedule that I put together for myself <laughs> on like a, on like my iCal. And I'm just like, I wake up, I do my exercise, I do my writing. I try to limit the amount of phone calls that I do. I, I, you know, try and keep myself in a creative place and, you know, moving projects forward. And, um, it's taken a while, you know, to, you know, I've really had like a seven year period since togetherness where I've really been like acting and helping other people make their stuff and figuring this, this thing out with my brother. And now I feel like I'm, I'm getting pretty close, but I, you know, I, I hope, and I feel like I'm, like getting close to like a place where I'm going to start making a lot of stuff again. Um, and I do love acting and I will do it when it's fantastic, but, um, I don't want to do anything that's less than awesome. So, you know, um, so finally, uh, we do a segment on this show called the first laugh. So I'm going to run through a few firsts from your life and career. And these are, are mostly about, uh, comedy, which we, we haven't talked a ton about in this conversation, but we'll try to lighten things up now. Uh, so going all the way back to your childhood, do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard? Yeah, probably Bugs Bunny, you know. I mean, I'm old enough to wear, yeah, just classic waiting for Saturday morning, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, Bugs Bunny, I would say Wiley e. Coyote. 
which is funny because like I now live in California and there's bunnies and coyotes in my front yard <laughs> battling it out. And I'm like, Oh, that's where yeah, this came that makes from. Sense. Yeah. 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 Um, I always like to ask uh, about audition stories. I don't know how much, if at all, you've had to audition as an actor, but I imagine you've been on the other side of a lot of auditions. So I was, I was wondering if any audition story stands out in your memory as being particularly uh, good or bad or, or memorable in some way. I have not had a lot of auditions, uh, but for Transparent, you know, I... I had never auditioned before and we had to do a screen test for Amazon. And screen tests are very, usually very intimidating with like lots of execs there and stuff, but they didn't have lots of execs. They just had like one guy, um, Joe Lewis, who's an amazing and wonderful person. But, um, it was very intense for me because I, I didn't really want to be an actor. Like Joey was like very intent on getting me in this show. Yeah. You and know, then all of a sudden like, you're like auditioning for Amazon execs. Yeah. And like there was, um, the top brass at Amazon did not want me in the show, not creatively, but because I was in first position with uh, my show on HBO and which was, you don't hire an actor that has another show that they run and is in first position, you know, it was like, so it was like, I started getting the feeling prior to this thing that just like nobody who was going to really make the decisions wanted me. And it was, that coupled with the fact that I was so overwhelmed by making togetherness and that I wasn't an actor in my mind, I just didn't want to go. Like <laughs> I really didn't want to go. And I literally on the morning of the audition, I called Joey and I was like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go like just get judged and not get this role anyways. Joey was with Gabby Hoffman at that moment. And they said, we are not getting off of this phone. You are going to this audition <laughs> and i was like what and they were like we're gonna sing to you until you go to this audition. And they started like singing me songs and like psyching me up and i was just like all right well who am i i gotta at least i gotta go like they they at least they want me and uh literally on the phone just talking to them driving to town like singing a song then we get in there and we do this 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 barbecue eating scene from the pilot um, and, um, it was awesome. Like lightning struck in the room, like Gabby and Amy were there and we were like fucking with each other and loving each other and, you know, making jokes. And, um, you know, like the scene ended and I looked over at Joey and like, they had this look on their face, like, who are you to deny what is happening here? And I, you know, I was also like, you know, I've made enough stuff to know that it's like, yeah, something is something really big is happening here. But even at the time, I was like, well, this is a web show. That's what they were calling it. It's a web show that was <laughs> going to be on Amazon, the place that I buy my toilet paper. You know, um, I was like, I don't even know how you see it. Like, what is that? It, it wasn't that way then. And then, you know, um, less than a year later, we're winning a Golden Globe. And so I, it was really a wild journey that I tried to say no to many times along the way. Uh, do you have a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened? So many. <laughs> Lord. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So when Mark and I had our first short film at Sundance, $3 movie, this is John. We, um, you know, we were, there, there are Sundance parties and then there are parties thrown at Sundance. The Sundance sanctioned parties are for the dorky young filmmakers who are just trying to like get a toe in, you know? And we went to every party, every happy hour for the whole two hours. Like we were so Catholic schoolboy about it, you know? <laughs> but then we started getting a whiff that like all these other parties were going on. And um, these were the big parties where, you know, the producers, and the studio execs and the famous people were going to, and we weren't being invited to any of those parties. And we concocted a plan. We, we found out that, um, that year we concocted a plan to come up with that. We were movie stars. We, we basically figured out who were the movie stars at Sundance that looked the most like us. <laughs> and, um, I, mine was David Arquette. Okay, um, yeah. and I had been 
not mistaken for him, but a lot of people were like, you look like David Arquette, you know, and <laughs> Marx was less convincing. Who is Mark? Mark was Tim Blake Nelson, which makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> That's funny. So we went and tried to get into parties saying that we were David Arquette and Tim Blake Nelson. And they, we didn't get into any parties. Yeah, who classically hang know, out together everywhere. No, they don't hang yeah. out. And second of all, when Tim Blake Nelson and David Arquette go to a party, they don't walk up by themselves and talk to the bouncer. You know what I'm saying? Like, they are brought, there's an entourage that comes in prior. They're probably coming in the back door. They're, we didn't know. Yeah. But we legit <laughs> tried to get into these parties masquerading as semi-famous people at Sundance. <laughs> um, and that is something that, like, when we were doing it, it was like, in all seriousness, it was dead serious and sad is yeah. what it was when we got rejected. And now it's the funniest fucking thing. And we actually kind of put a scene like that into Baghead, our second movie, where people are trying to sneak into a party. Yeah. Um, finally, uh, I like to give my guests a chance to shout out uh, anything that's making them laugh right now. So what's uh, what's something you've seen recently? Um, could be on TV, in a movie, anywhere that really made you laugh. What has made me laugh the most recently? I'll I'll just say I'll say two things if that's okay. Uh, this one did not make me laugh, but um, my friend Nana Mensa, who is in uh, the chair, uh, create wrote, wrote and directed and starred in this movie called Queen of Glory, and I think it's a stunning, incredible, super inventive, brilliant movie. Um, and I would I think the movie that made me laugh the most this year so far is Cha Cha Real Smooth, my filmmaking son Cooper Rafe's movie. So. You know, really um, funny, yeah. I guess I guess I keep it all in the family as per <laughs> usual. But yeah. I I do tend to to get to work with the people that I love their art the most. So I feel super lucky about that. Um, the one industry question that I forgot to ask you is, uh, is that your real hair or was that uh, for the character? That was for the character. I had never dyed my hair before. And that was a <laughs> huge, huge ordeal. That was really? like four out four or five hours in the trailer every week. And then every more every day that I worked about an hour to work it up to get it to look realistic because apparently like getting it's weird because I, I have gray hair in my beard. So it or silver or white hair in my beard, but I don't have any in my actual hair. I have some left over from, from industry from literally Dece <laughs> December. Uh, Cause I haven't acted since December. So um, yes, it was a huge ordeal. Uh, shout out to all the people who make that happen. Shout out to all the ladies who, who spend that much time in hair and makeup. Got a whole new respect for it. Cause I'm usually the guy that's just like, Oh, we'll just scoot him through in 15 minutes. I am always that guy, you know? Um, so it was here. quite an ordeal. Like my scalp burned like hell once a week. It was like, oh, I man. was such a wuss. I was such a wuss about it. It is not nothing. I will tell you that right now. All, <laughs> all, most ladies know this already. So they're just like, yeah, no shit, dude. Welcome to, welcome to being alive, uh, in the 21st <laughs> century. All right. Well, uh, well, thank you so much. I'm really, uh, enjoying your performance on that show and can't wait to see how it all, uh, wraps up. Um, and yeah, it's been really, really fun talking to you. So. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. It's always great talking to you, man. All right. That was my conversation with Jay Duplass. It may not have been our funniest episode ever, but I found it just really illuminating about what it takes to be a creative person right now. So thanks to Jay for sharing so much of himself. You can currently stream season two of Industry on HBO Max, and the season finale airs next Monday, September 19th on HBO. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.